Nation, so glad you're back for another episode of Healthcare 360. Today's episode again is jam-packed and promises to deliver a significant amount of value, resources, as well as thought-provoking ideas not typically heard in the mainstream medical community. And we're bringing it to you direct, the best and brightest. Do germs really cause disease? Is the heart just a pump? Is cancer not a genetic disease? These ideas and many others belong to today's guest, Dr. Tom Cowan, a retired family physician with a lifelong questioning mind who's studied and written about many subjects in medicine, and he's here today to share his knowledge with the 360 Nation. Dr. Cowan's common sense approach to medicine and biology is grounded in deep inquiry and observations of nature, and I believe all of us can learn an awful lot from this recording. It is significant. My goal is to motivate all of us to question what we hear and have learned and to encourage the need for lifelong learners. When you have a free moment, check out Dr. Cowan's website at drtomcowan.com. That's D-R-T-O-M-C-O-W-A-N.com. We can find his books, blogs, all of which are very interesting and dive deeper into today's topics. If you're a new listener to Healthcare 360, welcome and thank you for stopping by. If you're finding value in Healthcare 360, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube as well as our Apple Podcast channels. Give us a big thumbs up and hit that notification bell. Healthcare 360 purposely does not place ads into our podcast so you, the best and brightest, can have an uninterrupted stream of learning and mindful expansiveness. The best way you can support Healthcare 360 is to share this YouTube video and Apple Podcast with someone you love and care about. It really helps us to show and it'll help us grow so we can deliver more atypical conversations and deliver more value to you. If you have suggestions or would like to share your thoughts on Healthcare 360, be sure to reach out by email at Burgess at scotteburgess.com or visit our website at scotteburgess.com. So let's jump right into this. But before I forget, be sure not to miss next week's episode number 69 with Dr. Turner Osler. As always, thanks for being here and thank you for being a part of the 360 Nation. Welcome back to Healthcare 360. I am your host, Scott Burgess. Today's guest is very unique in either retired medical practitioner as well as an author. His new book, which is recently released in September of 2020, Contagion Myth, other books that you may find interesting are Human Heart and the Cosmos, Vaccines, Autoimmunity, and the Change in Nature of Childhood Illness as well as cancer and the new biology of water. He's a Duke University graduate, became a physician, and has been practicing or has practiced for 35 plus years of medicine. He has a really atypical story, and I found really interesting in some of the interviews that I've heard him in the past. He has gone into the Peace Corps, et cetera, and learned different ways and different methods of medicine. Dr. Tom Cowan. So welcome to Healthcare 360. We appreciate you being here and thank you for taking the time, sir. Thank you. Why don't we start into your your latest book, uh, Contagion Myth, because it's not necessarily about COVID-19, although we will get into that a little bit. Talk about the history there. There's so much that's just packed in and you're going really deep back in the 1800s, if you don't mind. The basis of, of it is I don't believe things just because everybody else does or because somehow I was told that this is true. Right. You know, so I wrote a book about the heart doesn't pump the blood, block arteries don't cause heart attacks. You get 
chronic sickness because of vaccines. Cancer is not a genetic disease. I'm no stranger to not believing things that I don't believe. The question is, do bacteria and viruses cause disease? And the first thing I would point out is there is no history in any other type of medicine, Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, Native American medicine, for thinking that that was the case. When they decided that that was, in fact, the case in the mid-1800s, basically Pasteur and Robert Koch and a few others, that was a break from history. Now, that doesn't mean they're wrong, but it's just interesting. And so they had this idea that unseen things could cause disease. And then they had what I call the first eureka moment, and they had a light microscope. And they saw bacteria, and so it was like, aha, that's what's causing disease. And it is true that if you have an, a site of injury or disease like tonsils that hurt and are inflamed, you know, in a lot of cases, you see bacteria called strep in the area. I would point out that nobody thinks because you see bacteria in the area of something, that means they cause the disease unless you think maggots kill dogs, which most reasonably sane people wouldn't think that. Right. They did what any normal person would do. So you have people who are sick, you find this bacteria because they could see them, and then you do the same thing that you would do if I said, can you prove that the caffeine in coffee beans causes high blood pressure, right? So you would take coffee beans, you would grind it, you would filter it, you would centrifuge it, and you would pull out only the caffeine. Right. You wouldn't give somebody just a coffee bean because there's millions of things or hundreds or thousands of things in a coffee bean. So that wouldn't prove it's the caffeine. So they did the same thing. They took snot or lung stuff or lesions. They pulled out the bacteria. That's called isolation. Just like if I want to know whether if I shoot this rubber band at you, it'll make your head hurt. I can't shoot a, a cannon with a rubber band in it because that's mm -hmm. stupid. You have to, sh have to take the rubber band and see if that's the problem. Right. So they took out the bacteria and exposed animals and people to it, and they didn't get sick. There is no example that our whole team of people and people I've interviewed in the medical research where an isolated bacteria caused sickness. You could say, I don't believe it, but I would love to see the evidence that that's true. Now, I didn't say they're not there. But just like, you know, if you have a compost pile and you put dead squirrels in it, you'll get bacteria eating the squirrels. As far as I know, no sane, rational human being says the compost pile has an infection. And not only that, but if you transfer those bacteria to a normal compost, they don't grow. Bacteria are scavengers in nature feeding off dead and diseased tissue. They're there to help you out. Imagine the forest if, you know, you cut down a tree and there was no fungus and bacteria, right? What would happen? The dead trees would sit there forever. Eventually the forest would die. You and all the rest of us would die if we don't have bacteria recycling our dead and dying tissue. 
we misconceive them as pathogens. If anybody doubts that, they have to send me a study saying, here's an isolation, not just exposing people to like snot, which is not isolated, right? That doesn't prove anything. And we couldn't find it. So then you go on and then they had diseases. So they were committed to, in spite of the evidence, and that's important, like a lot of science, they start with the theory and then they go looking for evidence to support their theory, not the other way around, which is you make observations and you try to understand what the sense of those observations are. They said all diseases are caused by germs, right? That's the theory. They found bacteria in some, but some like polio, they couldn't find a bacteria. So they said there must be something smaller than a bacteria. And they called it a virus, which means poison. And the main one they studied was polio. So here's how they proved that polio was caused by this virus. Try to see if you can get this. I mean, you're a smart guy. I'm sure you can. But so here's the thing. So they, Say all bacteria are caused by germ, all diseases. We have this polio, we can't find any bacteria. There must be something smaller. So they took people who died of polio, they grind up their brains, and they filter it. And so you have basically unpurified stuff. And they exposed 20 different animals to it. None of them got sick. And so then they said, it's because there are no animal models for polio. It says that in Wikipedia today, which, <laughs> I mean, right. So then they said, well, we can do one more thing. We can take two monkeys, drill a hole in their brain, inject about a half a cup of this stuff into their brain, not do a control. Like what happens if you take two monkeys and you drill a hole in their brain and squirt a half a cup of saline or water or milk or who knows? Probably nothing good. Uh, anyways, the two monkeys, one died, one got paralyzed. 1907, they hold the monkey up and say that proves polio is contagious and caused by a virus. That's unbelievable. What's their rationale for that conclusion? That doesn't make any sense. I don't know. It doesn't. It, I, their rationale is like I'm a lunatic and I made this up. And I expect people to believe me because because we know that these are caused by things that we can't see. I mean, I, I can't tell you what the rationale is because I don't get it. It sounds like, and correct me if I'm misleading this a little bit away, but I want to make sure that it's digestible for the audience. The virus and bacteria is just a dance of energy with us, and it's our evacuation system to the world. Yes, but you can get more specific because then just to, if I could finish the story. Yeah. So they have 40 years where they can't see anything, right? They just mm -hmm. say it's too small to see. And interestingly, they said they'll never see it because it's too small. And then somebody invents an electron microscope in the 30s, and they could see these particles in people like with polio. And so there they are. Eureka, we found it. So they did the same thing back in the 30s, as they did with bacteria. They isolate the virus because you can't give somebody a coffee bean and say that it's the caffeine that made their blood pressure go up. That's not what's called normal thinking. So they <laughs> took snot or 
disease tissue from people with polio, ground it up, filtered it, centrifuged it, pulled out the one stuff, the one band, proved that that was just these particles called polioviruses, they said, and then exposed 20 different animals to it. None got sick. They did this for 20 years with every particle called a virus they could think of. And as far as we can tell, there is no case to be made that any animal got sick. And so they said, we disproved that viruses cause disease. What these particles are, if something happens to you, right? So Mm -hmm. you get poisoned, your tissue breaks down, you detoxify by getting rid of these particles. So what I said in the beginning, it's like the tissues pooping out poisons. And it's a beneficial system that also communicates, A, I got rid of poison. Mm -hmm. B, it tells the other tissues in my body and maybe even other people, hey, I got poisoned. You should watch out. I mean, that's how trees do it. Beetles eat a tree and the trees know they're all in it together. Because if there's only one tree left, can't keep the water in the soil and it's too hot. So they die. So they send out signals to all the other trees to defend themselves, which then means that this whole idea of Darwinian survival, the fittest, genetic mutations driving evolution is complete nonsense. Complete nonsense. Adaptation is a communication system amongst living organisms, primarily through these packaged pieces of genetic material that are mistakenly called viruses. There are no pathogenic viruses. Outside of poison, what else would a virus be considered? I mean, a virus is considered to be a piece of genetic material in a package of protein. But the difference is they come from inside us. If people don't believe me, I have a paper, Viruses July 2020, and it's called Exosomes and Viruses. And they say, quote, however, to date, a reliable method that can guarantee a separation from exosomes, meaning from the inside, from viruses does not exist. If people don't understand what I mean by that, a virus is a thing. We're not talking about a feeling or a thought or a conception. It's a thing like a fork. And when the CDC says, and I quote, July 2020, there are no quantified viral isolates of the SARS-CoV-2 virus are currently available. There is no example of an isolated SARS-CoV-2 virus, according to the CDC in July 20. Everything, like a fork, can be isolated. This is a fork. And if you have two forks, you can count it. And then I can isolate this fork from this knife. They're forks, that's a knife. Right. The only reason I can't isolate this fork from this fork is because they're both forks. You can't isolate this paper from the next paper if it's the same paper. And the reason you can't isolate a pathogenic virus from something that comes from our own tissue is because they're both coming from the same tissue. They're the same thing. 
And we cannot wrap our brain around that because we're under a spell which makes it so we can't think straight. A lot of people have, quote unquote, passed away, died with COVID-19. They were under the impression they died of COVID-19. How do you know they had COVID-19? Well, they took a test from inter- an internal swab of the nose. Uh, at least but that's the what test I- is completely meaningless. Because yeah. how can you make a test that's based on finding a piece of the virus, which the author of the guy who came up with the test, guy's named Christian Drosten, he's the Fauci of Europe. Here is the paper where he described what to use in the test. This is the paper that's the linchpin of this whole thing. Here is what he says, and I quote, we aim to develop and deploy robust diagnostic methodology for use in public health laboratories without having virus material available. When they were asked in writing, what did they use as the genome of the virus? They said they used an in silico genome. You know what in silico means? No. Theoretical. You know what theoretical means? Uh, Imaginary. Imaginary. (laughs) You know what imaginary means? Make-believe. And then they asked them, what was the virus that they used to generate the sequences, which they said only came from the virus? And they said they used an in silico virus. You know what in silico means now? I most certainly do. Make-believe. (laughs) Make-believe. That's what they used. They made up this based on previous make-believe models. I can only say that these tests have no false positives. They have no false negatives. They have falses. Not only that, the sequences that they use, right? You've heard of the the spike protein? I have, yeah. That's a sequence of Mm -hmm. nucleotides. They say if you find the spike protein, that means it's a coronavirus. A guy I know did a what's called a BLAST search. That means he searched the computer database for all the sequences in the world, in human beings and in microbes. He found a 100 different human sequences that match exactly the spike protein sequence. Now think about that. We're told that this sequence is a unique identifier of the coronavirus. It turns out there's a hundred different exact same sequences in humans and 91 in different microbes. So when Roach, one of the makers of the test says, quoting from their package insert, these assays are not intended for use as an aid in the diagnosis of coronavirus infection. That's the test that we're referring to. Right in the package insert, you can't use this test for, I mean, you have to wonder, what are you supposed to use it for? Like toilet paper or what? I don't know. But you have to be careful with the wording here. And I'm not saying that people haven't died. They're dying from mostly uh, poisoning, particularly new radiation poisoning called millimeter waves which essentially is like putting the world in a microwave oven. And so their tissues break down, they get hypoxic. We've known that millimeter waves exposing people to it makes them hypoxic for about 50 years. 
50 that years. That long, 1977, the U.S. Naval Intelligence Service and the Russians did extensive research on millimeter waves. They found that millimeter waves degrade the oxygen in the environment and inhibit the ability of your tissues to turn oxygen into fuel, and so that the people or the animals would become hypoxic. They also said that they would produce a severe inflammatory reaction, which we now call a, quote, cytokine storm. Now, most of the people who are dying are dying of the same things they've always died of. Tom, can I take a time out real quick? So everyone understands the definition of this. Scientists believe the cytokines are evidence of a immune response called a cytokine storm, where the body starts to attack its own cells and tissues rather than fighting off a virus. This is an important piece to separate out. That means the virus is now, quote unquote, taken over. It's doing, it was intended to do is just destroy everything and kill it. The cytokine storms are also known to happen in autoimmune diseases such as juvenile arthritis. This is the type of cytokine storm that you will find in a Google search if you type that in. What is cytokine storm? So I'm sorry for interrupting you, but I wanted to explain that to the audience so they understand what it is as you go into this. Yeah, but it's also nonsense because they're saying that a cytokine storm is a way partly to clear out a virus. And since there are no pathogens called viruses, there is no reason for a body to make a so-called immune response against something which is imaginary. And so, and in fact, if you actually are intellectually honest and you realize that since bacteria and viruses don't cause disease, we don't actually need an immune system. We need a detoxification and a a tissue protective system. That's different. If you poison somebody, their tissues will break down and the body will try to use its inflammatory mechanisms to clear out the poison. Just like if you put a splinter in your finger, you'll generate pus in order to get the splinter out. No sane person thinks you have an infection. They think your body is trying to do a detoxification mechanism. If you put uh, air pollution and particulate matter in your lungs, or if you smoke, your body will try to use inflammatory methods and pus and inflammation to get the smoke and debris out of your lungs, right? Mm-hmm. That's normal. And then their bacteria come to help to digest some of the debris. That is not a reaction against a virus or bacteria. That is a complete misconception, which is fundamental to we in medicine and science have misinterpreted normal bodily reactions to poisoning as somehow these are diseases and they're not. And so then they make up things like immune systems and all the rest of it to explain the stuff that doesn't make sense. And, you know, we put a quote in our book, if you want to know about immune response to the virus, I happen to have said this many times from the head of infectious disease at Wake Forest University, big famous guy. Hmm. They asked him, what, what about the immune response to the coronavirus? And he said, well, it's very clear. If you have an immune response, it means you either had the virus or you didn't. You were either sick or you weren't. And you're either immune or you're not immune. <laughs> and that's like going to buy a refrigerator and you say to the guy, 
what do you think about this refrigerator? He says, yeah, it's good. It'll either keep the food cold or it won't. <laughs> Mostly we would put those people, at least we used to it, in insane asylum or at least get them to not sell refrigerators because obviously they don't know anything. That's just a continuous string of double knots going right down the road there. Pure nonsense. The problem is people hear that and they think, oh, this is so complicated, I can't possibly understand it. Instead of thinking, this guy is a lunatic and he doesn't make any sense because he doesn't know what he's talking about. Mm. And we can't seem to get to that normal human reaction which is trusting ourselves to understand that if somebody's talking nonsense, day one they tell you masks don't work, and day three they tell you masks do work, there's something wrong not with you, but with the, <laughs> the yeah. understanding of the guy who's telling you this. I know you're against openly promoting products, and I don't want you to do that, although I will redirect everyone to your website. I do have audience members who have asked me questions that they would like for you to answer, if you don't mind. Uh, sure. They want to know, how can they learn of alternatives that may be available to them for both prevention and treatment of a cytokine storm on the immune system? Well, like I said, you don't have an immune system. So the first thing is you should disentangle yourself from that misconception, or I would call it a delusion. It's really because... Like anybody in their life, you change and learn more and correct a lot of things that I got wrong before. Sure. Every single thing I got wrong, in my opinion right now, and there were a number of them, some of them relatively embarrassing ones, they were because I believed the dominant narrative too much. 100%. I used to think the reason we get sick are injuries starvation, right? Mm -hmm. You get scurvy because you don't have any vitamin C. Or poisoning. Poisoning is the main one. But this whole thing has made me add a fourth category, mm -hmm. which I call delusions. Thinking ridiculous thoughts also makes people sick. So we should try not to do that. And so that's why I pick on people who say, what should I do to help my immune system? Because that's an abstract question, which there's no answer to. Well, let me ask you this. Would you believe in the statement that beliefs lead to imagination, imagination leads to physiology, physiology leads to experience, and then that creates a vicious cycle? And then you insert negative thought pattern, whatever, and it just keeps going around and around and around. Because I actually believe the same thing, that your yeah, beliefs eventually lead to experience. Right. That's pretty close. I don't know if I totally agree with negative versus positive, mm -hmm. because I think there's room for, like you could say, I think a bear is chasing me, and that's a negative thought, except if there is a bear chasing me. Right. Then it's a, actually a useful thought, because you might want to run or get a gun or whatever, talk to the bear and convince them not to eat you or something. So if you're saying a negative thought is, I'm going to put a, a router under my chair and sit in it for eight hours a day, like I knew a guy who did, mm -hmm. and ended up getting rectal cancer. And he would not believe that it had anything to do with this high intensity router right underneath his chair. And I said to the guy, you might consider, he said, well, that's negative thinking. I said, maybe. Wow. 
it is negative thinking, I guess. I would call it understanding that routers put off certain frequencies which actually make the water in your tissues less coherent. And that is what we call sickness. Mm-hmm. And so you might want to not do that. That's probably not what you mean by negative and positive, but just thought patterns. Your experience ultimately starts and ends with your belief system. Yes. How you think. How you think. So, right. and that comes from something that I've heard quite a bit and also comes from Dr. Wayne Dyer. And he actually gave an example in one of his talks about his grandmother in Alzheimer's. She absolutely refused to die of Alzheimer's and she died a natural, normal death. Now, I don't know the prelude to that of how she lived her life or how she ate, where she lived, the air that she breathed. I don't know. But Alzheimer's in his family had occurred a few times, especially if if genetics is the path to. There is no genetic diseases. Which is the point that you made earlier that, yeah, there is no genetic disease. It just doesn't exist. No, because we have all the sequences there are in the world. You can prove that. And we make what we need based on the integrity of the water in our tissues. And you can also prove that. So there can't be a genetic disease because that means you have a defect in the gene. And the fact of the matter is the genes are very malleable. And what's happening is you're pushing expression towards a fixed end, which may not be in your best interest. You know, I started realizing this even in medical school. The the most distinctive genetic disease ever that all doctors learn about is sickle cell anemia. It was very interesting because I also learned a little bit more of it. So the theory is these Africans have this defective gene and it causes the red blood cells to sickle. And the reason they have it is because it's adaptive against malaria. Everybody knows that. It's high school biology. So there I am in medical school, and a guy comes in, 23, and he has his first in his life sickle cell crisis, meaning his joints are all swollen, et cetera. We did what we did, and I asked him, so what happened? He said, I don't know. I was fine for 23 years, and then I just got this. My joints got swollen. So I asked the head doctor, I said, If he has this genetic disease, which is always there, how come he was fine for 23 years? You know what he said? He said, well, the disease got unmasked. What the hell does that mean? So, of course, being the smart aleck that I am, I said, well, maybe he should wear a mask. And and then I found out, here's another interesting part of that story. It's supposedly to prevent malaria, which is transmitted by mosquitoes, If you're infected, they suck out your blood and they transfer the bacteria to another person, right? Mm -hmm. That's how it goes. So Walter Reed, you know, the famous Walter Reed, who was a big germ theory guy, goes down to, I think, Panama or Ecuador because he heard that the soldiers there were getting sick with malaria. It goes there, almost nobody is getting sick with malaria. And so then he says, yeah, must be the mosquitoes. So he starts spraying everything with arsenic and then everybody starts getting malaria. Then he wants to prove that it's transmitted by the mosquitoes. So he takes one of the soldiers with malaria, sticks his arm in a cage, right, with a bunch of mosquitoes, right? So he can't take his arm out. So he puts his arm in there 
and the mosquitoes poke around, but they won't bite them. You know why the mosquitoes won't bite them? Because they know he's sick. Yeah, because they read the contagion myth and they know this guy's poison. <laughs> and we're not we're not taking this guy's blood because there's something bad in him. Just wow. like my grandfather used to drink about a liter of vodka every day. When the mosquitoes were out, he would hold his arm out and the mosquitoes would, couldn't bite him because apparently they don't like vodka. Wow. All right. So, so is that an indicator then for people who are healthy versus sick? What bugs may do, bite or not bite? Yeah, maybe. Uh, mosquitoes are too smart to bite somebody who's got arsenic poisoning because they might get sick, so they won't do it. And if they can't bite somebody or won't with malaria, how is it possible that they transmit the disease? <laughs> they only bite people who don't have malaria. The point is, if anybody bothers to do science instead of just making up theories, like we know it must be this bacteria. Even though if you isolate the bacteria, you don't make anybody sick. They did wow. that. If that's true, then why did they have sickle cell to protect them against that? Mm -hmm. And it turns out, I don't exactly know why they have sickle cell, but something must have happened to this guy when he was 23. And it's not because he stopped wearing a mask, because he didn't wear a mask before. So it couldn't be that it was unmasked. That was, that's just ridiculous. But that's what we say. Are we saying because, and now that you've actually gone back and you've redefined that we don't have an immune system, we really need a protective system of our tissues, there's no need to worry about an alternative? I mean, people can get sick, right? I never said people can't get sick. I mean, I can give you pretty dire estimates of what's going to happen if we keep putting glyphosate in the air and we keep wearing masks and we keep starving people and impoverishing people. And if we roll out millimeter waves on the whole world, you mm -hmm. can get a lot of people sick. And I mean a lot. If you see it as that, this is starved, poisoning and delusional. That's mm -hmm. what the problem is. You first thing is stop poisoning yourself. <laughs> it's not like rocket science. If the reason you're getting sick is because you're eating glyphosate and breathing in cyanide, stop breathing in cyanide. And, but that may not be easy for a, a single person because they yeah. spray it in the air and et cetera. So then you have to learn how to protect yourself. And that's a lot of the things we wrote about in the book. I know you're a fan of making sure that we turn off or we get away from Wi-Fi signals and EMF radiation, et cetera. If you can, from 2G, when the original cell phones were introduced, out to 5G, what is the difference in the millimeter bandwidths between all those different technologies? And I don't want to go down a technology rabbit hole here, but real high level. I mean, I'm no expert in this. All I know is that there's two principles which I do know. One is that if you Look at the electromagnetic spectrum of the Earth or the sun or the planets or humans or dogs or birds or anything. It's A, non-pulsed, and B, it's not a single frequency, right? Mm -hmm. It's just a lot of different frequency that are they're all over the place and there's no pulsation. That's how human beings essentially adapted and evolved. This is the energy of life. Right. Now you come into that. 
And for understandable reasons, you want a pulsed single frequency because mm -hmm. that's how a radio works. You can't tune your radio to any electromagnetic frequency because you won't get anything. You turn it to a pulsed 98.6 and then mm -hmm. you hear the music. Right. It's not coming from inside the radio like we think. It's coming from the world. That's how it works. We have never been exposed as biological entities to pulsed single frequency waves. Now, that one, when it started, was kind of a shock and people got sick, but then we adapt to it because of, quote, viruses. Mm -hmm. They send out signals saying, here's the way to adapt. But then you can't run having everybody's bank account on a digital account on a 98.6 frequency because there's not enough bandwidth for that. Right. And, and you can't download videos and all that. So you start making stronger and stronger pulsed single frequencies or a few frequencies, and they get stronger and stronger so that you can have a trillion devices attached to this one sort of group of frequencies. That's called 5G. And so if you're going to run the entire world on this frequency, you better have a lot of bandwidth. Because if you're going to run all the airplanes and all the buses and all the devices and all the cell phones and all the bank accounts and all the mortgages and all the businesses on this, these single frequencies or this group of frequencies, mm -hmm. it better be pretty strong. Right. And the stronger, the more dangerous. This is obvious. And so you get these very specific toxic effects. I mean, there's a lot of things you could say, but for me, there's, I don't have any devices. I wouldn't even use a computer, except I, I guess you could say I sort of have to, but I, <laughs> for temporarily, I use a wired computer only. You're wiring your computer directly to your router or your home network yes. so you can get access. Okay. Yes. No wireless devices. I do all kinds of things to mitigate the sort of ambient wireless frequencies that there's nothing I can do about. Yeah, I would like to know about that. You know, I'm in a position where people have sent me 20 different things. This one prevents a biological damage from wireless exposure. Mm -hmm. And this way to, to improve your water, like I would never drink water out of a plastic bottle like you just did. <laughs> never. The plastic leaches plastics into the water. Water dissolves anything. And now you, you are a water-based gel receiver. The more integrity your water is, the more resistant you are to having it be denatured and scrambled and therefore diseased by wireless devices. So I just told my daughter, by the way, that I said, hey, we're getting a home filtration system because she took water from the tap. Yeah. So she goes, really? I said, yeah, we need to get it. Right. So there's that. There's biogeometry, which essentially transmutes the wireless signal. So, you know, I wear biogeometry. The problem is there is research and there's evidence that these things work, but mm -hmm. not as much for me to say everybody should go out and get such and such. Yeah. I don't want to be wrong about this. Now, 
I use things because I'm trying to understand with myself and my friends and family, can I see an effect? That's different than saying I know because I don't know yet. And I've got a lot of people trying to get me to say I do know that their device or their program works. And I don't know yet. I have a a friend uh, who is also a a past guest in the show. And her name is uh, Kristen Camella. She runs a facility called Biohackers. For the first time, I saw this unit. It was called a quantum scalar. Yeah. Uh, And they have something very similar to what you just showed me in the biogeometry. And I did my little research on it as much as I could understand it. But I guess there is radiation elements built in to help absorb into the pendant versus into the tissue. Yeah. The problem is all these people have bought into the sort of cellular theory of disease and they talk about immune systems and all and they do all their experiments because they're easier and cheaper on basically cells growing in tissue culture Mm -hmm. i don't pay any attention to any experiment on any cell growing in any culture because once you take anything out of the biological system it becomes irrelevant It's essentially what Goethe said a couple hundred years ago. The time when Western science went wrong was we wanted to know about frogs, how frogs work, what makes up frogs, how to take care of frogs. So you know what the first thing we did was? Boil the frog. (laughs) Kill the frog, right. Right? Yeah. So then we chop up the frog in little pieces, and he said, there's nothing to learn there. The frog is dead. And I can tell you one thing I know for sure is it did not help that frog because that frog is dead. And now there's millions of frogs dead from experimental research. And all we have is a situation now where the frogs are basically at risk of going extinct. So it didn't work. Only crazy people would keep doing the same thing. We don't know how a frog works. The only way to know that is to make an actual connection with living frogs and see what they do helps them or doesn't help them. Then you start to understand the frog. So anybody who does research on, I take your liver, I take a piece of it out, I put it in a culture, I see what happens. It's not part of a living system. The whole experiment is irrelevant. Mm. That's how we do medicine these days. This cancer drug works because we grew this cancer cell line and then it killed the cancer cell. And so now it's a good medicine. I mean, there's so many abstractions and inconsistencies and uncontrolled aspects of that, that it's basically pure nonsense. I want to go back a little bit to the viruses. So who came up with a great idea of vaccines, understanding what you just said about viruses and bacteria? Why do we say in the medical community that they're proven effective? Because we don't understand science or how to do it. There's no evidence that they are effective in any way. And all you have to do is look at the published research to show there is no evidence that any vaccine has ever solved any healthcare problem. I mean, it came about originally through Jenner, and then Pasteur did his famous anthrax experiment, where Pasteur was 
dedicated to the idea that germs cause disease. He became famous and rich. And the main thing was about anthrax. That was his main case. But he also wrote a personal diary, which he said never to be published. But mm -hmm. one of his grandsons, I think, hated him, so he published it anyways. Here's how vaccines got started. They had a big problem with anthrax, which was killing the sheep. Pasteur isolates the anthrax bacteria because some of the sheep who were dying of this disease had the bacteria, not all. He also found that some of the sheep who were fine also had the bacteria, but he forgot about them. So he takes the bacteria, purifies it, grows it in a culture, gives it to a bunch of sheep. None of them got sick. Then he realized that he could make virulent anthrax. And what he did was he basically mixed the anthrax culture with arsenic and carbolic acid, two poisons. Oh. And then this virulent anthrax killed the sheep. Now, you can't say, obviously, whether it was the anthrax, which he knew didn't kill the sheep, or the arsenic, which he knew did kill the sheep. And they were also dipping the sheep in arsenic as a sort of tick bite dip at that time. So then he does a vaccine experiment. He takes 150 sheep, 75 of them, half of them he gives his vaccine for anthrax. The other 75, he doesn't. And then he exposes all 150 to anthrax. The 75 unvaccinated all died. The 75 vaccinated, none died. That became the start of the modern vaccine program. Hmm. Now, it's interesting because you never find those kind of numbers in real experiments, except it turns out he gave the unvaccinated ones the virulent anthrax, and he gave the vaccinated ones the normal anthrax. <laughs> and, and he knew that wow. if you give the normal anthrax, nothing would happen. He already knew that. And he knew that if he gave them the arsenic anthrax, you would kill the sheep. He didn't tell anybody this, and he wrote it in his diary. And then he sold a million dollars worth of anthrax vaccine, which got him in trouble because it never worked. And that really is the prototype for how to do a vaccine experiment. That's just disgusting right there. I mean, you know, somebody said, I, I was interviewing somebody the other day who Jeez. has done research into the fraud called psychopharmaceutical drugs, like mm -hmm. Prozac and all that. And she made a very interesting comment, which is, you know, we all get mad at pharmaceutical companies, but at least in this country, their charter is to make money. Oh, right? absolutely. Right. That's yep. their legal. And you might say, I don't know if it's moral duty, but that's their duty. Mm -hmm. Now, if they can do an experiment that convinces people that everybody should buy for $100 billion their stuff, why not? That's their job. Right. It's not their job to blow the whistle on themselves. Now, we could say, well, they should be good people and all that, and maybe that's true. but. Mm -hmm. It's our job. Now, you could say it's the government job, but the government is corrupt. It's like two, two different crime families that are competing <laughs> to, you know, who gets to be the top crime family. So I'm going to borrow that one. That's a great statement right there. 
So <laughs> anybody who believes that is just, you know, a sucker. So you have to do your own looking into it, realize and actually read the studies because they won't do it for you. Yeah. And this is, uh, again, from another audience member. Although I have a very strong understanding of the issues around a vaccine, a proposed vaccine for COVID-19, they would like for you to explain the toxic soup that this vaccine can or could or will create in the short and long term. First of all, the Pfizer and the Moderna are not vaccines. They are called vaccines because then they become under the, the rubric of things that you, you don't get liability for, whereas sure. if it's called a drug. And the reason I say that is because the common understanding of a vaccine is a, a medical intervention to make you immune to a certain viral or bacterial disease that will prevent transmission of that viral or bacteria disease to others. Mm -hmm. That's the common definition or what most people would think of. Now, if you say it, so in other words, if you're going to study it, you should study its effect on a viral or bacterial infection. And you should study whether that prevents transmission. If anybody bothers to read the study of the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine, not only have they not been shown to prevent any viral infection or prevent the transmission of any viral infection, they were designed so that they didn't even study any effect on viral transmission or infection or transmission. Let me say that again. Wow. In order to know whether it prevents a viral infection, I mean, this sounds obvious, you have to study its effect on viral infection. And in order to know whether it prevents transmission, you have to study its effect on transmission. They say quite clearly, we did not do any studies based on whether it has any effect on a viral disease or any effect on transmission. What they studied was symptom reduction. In other words, we picked a day, like day 14, and we said, how many people have these symptoms? Fever, myalgia, you know, a bunch of things that we associate with COVID-19. You could have the flu or poisoning or something else. So they assessed how many people vaccinated or unvaccinated had these symptoms on day 14. And they were more in the unvaccinated than the vaccinated. So then they said it's effective. Hmm. They didn't assess whether it had any effect on immune system, coronavirus, or transmission. They didn't test for that. Now, interestingly, if you add in the number of side effects from the vaccine, which are identical to the symptoms that they were following, in other words, they said, who has less fever and muscle aches on day 14? Right. That's 100 versus 5. What are the side effects? Fever, muscle aches, headaches through all the days. And it turns out approximately in that group, 400 of the vaccinated had all these symptoms. But in another study, 67% of the people who had the vaccine had the exact same symptoms, which they were calling COVID-19. But they weren't on day 14. 
because they went away by day 14. So they had less symptoms on day 14. This may be hard for people to follow, but all you have to realize is this was a symptom reducing on a certain day drug protocol, which they put in under a vaccine so that they would not have liability because if it's a drug, if they said, we're going to test a drug to see if you'll get less symptoms on day 14, people would say, that's ridiculous. We don't want that. Mm. And then they would be liable if there was damages. And, you know, somewhere around 60 to 70% of the people had the similar, if not identical side effects as the symptoms they were studying. <laughs> and I mean, so are we saying that as they're getting better, they're getting better on their own immunity, their own systems? As these people get past these illnesses? You know, these, the, the way they design this is extremely clever. So if I was to say, have you ever had, uh, you know, like a flu-like thing and been achy and fever and pains? Mm -hmm. So it usually lasts two weeks or less, right? Yeah. How many times in your life have you then immediately gotten sick again? I, I don't remember. Right. Maybe next year or six months later or three yeah. years later. So here's how you design a trial to show that you have less people sick on day 14. You give them something that gives them the same symptoms on day one, and then they get, quote, sick for a week or so. And then like most of us, you get better. And then you're not sick for a little while. So you'll get less sick on day 14 compared to if you just let people do nothing. Some will get sick on day seven, some on day 14 or whatever. And then you get this slight difference in the amount of people sick on day 14 because you made them sick on day 10. And then they <laughs> got better. And then they, like you, say, well, I didn't get sick this next day, you know, because I was already sick last week. And you think this is a brilliant strategy. In other words, the trial couldn't fail. Because if you design a trial like that, and not only that, but people don't understand what's called risk reduction. So where do they get 94% effectiveness? Let me go through this with you for a minute. Mm -hmm. If you have a drug that prevents heart attacks, right? Right. And you take a million people, a million people you give the drug, a million people you don't give the drug. Proper controls everything. Mm -hmm. And you wait a year. At the end of the year, two of the people you didn't give the drug to out of a million had a heart attack. The people you did give the drug to, one out of a million had a heart attack. What is the benefit of that drug? It's one out of a million, which is 0 0.0001 one. versus 0 0.0002. Two. I'm not sure I got the zeros right. You know what they would report? 33% reduction. You know where they got the number from? There's a total of three people in this whole two million who got heart attacks. Two of the three, which is 66%, didn't take the drug. One of the three who did take the drug wow. got a heart attack. That's 33%. The benefit of taking the drug is 33%. Now, is let me finish this. That's how they got the numbers. 90 plus 5 is 95. 90 is 94% of 95. That's how they got a 94% reduction 
when the real number is 0.57% reduction. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Let's say 10 out of the people who got the drug, right, 10 out of a million, had a side effect, like they couldn't see, and zero in the not drug. Mm -hmm. So what's the risk of taking the drug? They would say, it's nothing. It's 0.0001 versus 0.001. Right. So that one they do in real numbers. The benefit they do in this phony numbers called risk reduction. That's fraud. And they oh. report every single drug trial in that kind of nonsense. And then the media picks up on that and they're just an ally to that. 94%. 94%. And like I know the exact numbers because I know that 90 out of 15,000 in the Moderna trial, I think it's Moderna or Pfizer, got symptoms. That's 0.6%. Hmm. That's the unvaccinated. In the vaccinated on day 14, 5 out of 15,000 got symptoms. That's 0.03%. The difference is 0.57%. Now, in the side effects, it was 400 in one thing they did. It depends which one number you look at. 400 out of 15,000 versus almost zero out of 15,000. And they report that as an insignificant 2%. I mean, this is I, unreal. I must say I give them credit because... If it weren't for certain people explaining, like you probably didn't know this. No, I, I thought the numbers were the numbers because, again, I was brought up in my healthcare career that the WHO, the CDC, the FDA, the NIH, all of them, that they're credible resources and they're doing the best by all means. I mean, they're, they're lying and it's a great, it's probably the best marketing job that I've ever seen. The thing is, I, I want to emphasize, it's not actually lying. Because one plus two, it is 66% of three. It's deceit. It's absolutely deceit. Right. The word that I would use, it's not biologically relevant. Nobody wants to know that uh, one plus two of the three million people will get less heart attacks if they take a drug that might kill them. That's not what any human being actually is interested in. They would say, you mean only one person out of a million if I don't take this drug will have a heart attack? I'm not taking it. One of the pharmaceutical companies, they reported that there were six deaths already in four cases of Bell's palsy in relationship to this COVID-19 vaccine. Yeah, but then they'll say it's six out of 20,000. That's 0.01%. Don't worry about it. But right. if six unvaccinated got sick in some way, they'll say that's a 600% increase. You better watch out. Let me ask you about that. So there was also something on the, and I don't know if this is valid or true, but the COVID-19 virus itself had already mutated 30 plus times. That's since it's total nonsense. Because there is no coronavirus that has ever been isolated or proven. So how could it have mutated? mutated that's right. Uh, yeah. Unicorns don't mutate into secondary imaginary unicorns. How do you explain this, that there's now approximately 6,000 different genetic variations of this virus? Mm. It's simple. 
it, everybody is exposed to a slightly different level of poisoning. We're going to consider this poisoning the wavelength, the five millimeter wavelength. Or glyphosate or aluminum or there's lots of poisons. Mm -hmm. So let's say this guy has three parts aluminum, one part glyphosate, four parts millimeter waves. The next guy, I don't remember the numbers, but two parts, two parts, and six parts. Mm -hmm. They will have slightly different genetic deterioration because of their toxic insult. So do you use heavy metal to reduce the, the metals in your bloodstream? The toxic insult degrades your DNA. Mm-hmm. That gets packaged up in what are inappropriately called viruses. Now, everyone's different because whatever the insult was, was different that provoked this. And instead of saying this 6,000 variations mean that there's 6,000 different ways people got poisoned, you know, all little different variations on a theme, they say these are mutating viruses. That's Mm. ridiculous. They're just, if I hit you on the head, you'll get a big bump. And if I hit the next guy in the head, you get a slightly bigger bump. Those are not genetic variations of bumps. Those are because I hit you a little harder than the next guy. Earlier on, I saw that you identified four ways that people get sick. Okay, so injuries, starvation, being poisoned, and you used emotional toxicity. You said number four was delusion, so maybe it's five. The way you just described the yeah, insult. Four and five are. <laughs> they're, they're the same, right? Yeah. You're delusional and therefore emotionally confused. Yeah, that's a nice tie-in. With that insult to the cell, could that also be considered an injury or is that still poisoning? Yeah. yeah. I mean, whatever, right? Yeah. Which means then we're under injury all the time then, which means yes. our bodies is always in fight or flight constantly. That's why we always make exosomes to try to detoxify and protect ourselves. That's why there's trillions of viruses. They're not viruses at all. They're ways your body is trying to adapt to like what the F is going on out here. Right. I thought I'm supposed to just sort of play around in the woods and eat good food and laugh with my friends. And I have to like detoxify night and day. Like this isn't right. So is there an exhaustion period there that we have to work? Your body can't deal with it anymore and then you get cancer and die. Okay. This is not that complicated. If you don't want to have that happen, then don't poison yourself. Unfortunately, that's harder now than it used to be. Yeah, it's extremely hard. When we first spoke, I talked about the heart and the cosmos, your other book. 1920s, no one got heart disease. Everything was great. People eating fat, lard, uh, meat, carnivore diet, whatever diet people wanted to follow. They were were not getting sick. Very, very few if they were, right? Then there was an introduction of processed foods. I'm going to leave it there at processed foods because it could be anything. It could be uh, rancid vegetable oils, bad types of seeds. And you had an astounding comment, which I just, it literally almost knocked me off my chair. But you came out and said, if you have to read a label, you're reading the wrong stuff. Right. (laughs) Meaning to stick with the fruits, the vegetation the meat and have a nice day. So going into heart disease, and we talked about stents a little bit, how stents are ineffective. And there was a blind study where they had put 
I, I forget the participation number, but it was 50, uh, let's say 50 people had a stint put in and then 50 had a placebo put in, but 80% on both groups reported that there was no change, something to that nature. Can you talk to us about heart disease a little bit and what's really happening and what is heart disease for that matter? Easily proven that traditional people didn't have heart disease and none of them were vegans and none of them were vegetarians. They ate whatever they had and animals and fat and everything. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of things happened. Bad food and EMFs and toxic cultures and all kinds of stuff. And then people start dying of heart disease. And they came out with this ridiculous theory that it's because of blocked arteries, which a lot of cardiologists didn't agree with. You know, you can, I mean, I wrote a whole book, Human Heart, Cosmic Heart, on disproving the blocked artery theory. And there's a website called heartattacknew.com. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one of the reasons I got into this was I would see people as a doctor and they would, you know, typical story, guy with chest pain walking up Mount Tam or some place. And his wife says, you got to go to the cardiologist. So he goes to the cardiologist and says, oh, you might have a heart attack, does an angiogram, 95% blockage of one of his arteries, right? I saw 100 people like that. Cardiologist says, if that artery blocks anymore, you're going to die of a heart attack. And I thought to myself, okay, we're told that all the blood to your heart goes through these three arteries, and one of your arteries has only 5% blood flow, right? 95% block. Right. How in the hell did you walk up Mount Tam? You mean to tell me if it blocks from 5% to 2%, you're going to die? As if 5% and 2% is any different at all? This is nonsense. And then I thought, okay, we're told that there's something in the blood that's blocking up your arteries, like cholesterol or fat or inflammation. And then, you know, if I asked you, do you think the arteries in your heart are the same as the artery to your leg and spleen and liver? Of course they are. And do you think the blood going through the heart arteries is the same blood as going through the spleen and liver and leg? 100%. Okay. So if there's something in the blood blocking the arteries, it must block the arteries in the spleen and liver and leg. Because same blood, same arteries. How many people do you know had a spleen attack? (laughs) Absolutely nobody. How about a leg attack? (laughs) No one. How about a liver attack? Uh, Outside of someone having a transplant, you hear of nothing. That's not an attack. That's they got a sick liver. Right. I've asked probably 100,000 people in talks and everything. Not one person knows anybody who had a spleen attack. Jeez. How many people do you know had a heart attack? A lot. Oh, countless. Yeah. yeah. Dick it's, Cheney, Bill Clinton. It's the leading cause of cardiovascular disease in this country. Right. How come? Same artery, same blood. Mm. Doesn't make I, any sense. My, my official answer to that, I think it's emotional distress. Right. There's something different about the heart than the spleen. And maybe it's the heart processes emotions. I I, I don't know. but And maybe there's a different relationship in the heart and emotions than the spleen and emotion. Mm. All I know is that it's not artery related because those are the same. The blood is the same. There's no point lowering stuff in the blood. 
there is something different about the heart than there is the spleen. And that's what I got into in the book. There's yeah. a whole different energetic pattern of the heart. And once that's disturbed, and right, it could be emotions, it could be toxins, it could be EMF exposure, it could be bad food, it could be a lot of things. We don't have to just say it's emotions, that's it, nothing else matters. Because I can guarantee you if you suck on Crisco all day, that's not good for you. Yeah, absolutely not. If we were to put into a list in toxicity, EMF, try to reduce it. What are your thoughts on the quantum scalar for that? Do you think that's effective? I don't know. I can't yeah. say. And yeah, I would I, also say the idea of try to reduce it, mm-hmm. that's useless. Either reduce it or you don't. You don't try to do anything. Anything Somebody says, I'm going to try to to be better. You always know that (laughs) it's not a chance. Oh, the word try is uh, is like the exoskeleton for a mouse being able to get out of a slim, narrow opening of a door. Yeah, (laughs) I always tell my wife, I'll try to be uh, nice. (laughs) (laughs) She knows there's no way. Yeah, I, I get you. I understand. Reducing EMF. Ben Greenfield, he has a kill switch at night, shutting off all the Wi-Fi in his house. Is that feasible for everybody? No, but maybe you can just put a a timer. You got to just figure this out because the only thing that's going to happen to you if you don't figure it out is not good. If you have to read labels, don't eat it. Don't eat food that has labels. And the last one, what would you say would the last one be here? Start thinking. Start thinking. Emotional intelligence, for sure? That wouldn't be a bad idea either. (laughs) Probably. Uh, Dr. Cowan, if you don't mind, tell us exactly where we can find you again. And I know there's other products on your website. Uh, The stage is yours. It's just drtomcowan.com. T-O-M-C-O-W-A-N.com. I have two final questions for you before you go. You are an astounding brain. There's so much knowledge in that head. What do you read? How do you know it's the head? Uh, well, you know something? Because that's what I was told, so I don't know. Uh, yeah, you don't know. How about spirit? Who knows? <laughs> right? Where do you focus all your attention for your learning? I just try to find people and things that I seem to be drawn to and go from there. Awesome. And then... The final word is yours. You can leave the audience with whatever words you want to leave them with. Hey, thanks for listening. <laughs> Love it. Perfect. Dr. Cowan, I appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. Take care. See you now. Bye. I want to send a special thank you to Dr. Tom Cowan for sharing and spending his time with the 360 Nation. If you like Healthcare 360 and enjoyed this conversation, give this podcast a share and don't forget to write a review. It really helps out the show. Oh, and before I forget, head on over to YouTube where you can watch this entire cast with Dr. Tom Cowan and myself in its entirety, as well as many short clip deep dives when you're on the move. Thanks again. This is Scott Burgess. And from all of us with the Healthcare 360 team, we'll see you for episode number 69. Cheers to you and cheers to the new year as we enter into 2021. As always, thank you for being here and thank you for being a part of the 360 Nation. See you next time.